Hey, this is Keith Price. Thanks so much for listening to this crazy, crazy podcast. It's a pleasure and a joy being a connection to you and so many of the fabulous things that are happening in the theater. Now, having said that, can you do me a favor? Now, this is a long list, so be ready for it. All right, you ready? Will you like Keith Price's Curtain Call on Facebook? Will you follow Keith Price Curtain Call on Instagram? Will you go to at KP Curtain Call on Twitter? Will you subscribe to Keith Price Curtain Call on YouTube page? Now, once you do all of that, go back and tell all of your friends, especially the ones that love theater, the guy to do the same thing. Now, if you're also loving the show, if you're on iTunes and Google Play Music, can you please leave a review as well? It seems that in this crazy world of podcasting, having great content is not enough. Clearly. (laughs) You also need that social media love, too. So if you're enjoying the podcast, show me a little social media love. And thanks for listening. Ooh, you are listening to Keith Price's Curtain Call. Ooh, and we are back. Although I'm just not adjusted in this room. What the hell? This is what happens when you don't do a podcast for a minute because you've been spending all your time luxuriating at mm. Sheldon Harnick's house. Oh. <laughs> well, we should have such problems. We should all have this problem. <laughs> Woo, y'all. Well, we are back. Now, you know, I got to say that I love an overture just like the next guy. And um, as you heard as we were rolling in, we had a fabulous overture by... Uh, you know, friend of the podcast, he was in a show that we did a little year a little year or so ago when I first started doing this, and he was one of the first people that came when I called Mr. Rob McClure, Tony-nominated Rob McClure. That's my man, mm-hmm. currently on tour in Something Rotten. Somewhere in the United States, get your tickets, go to somethingrottens.com, because Rob is the man. And um, when I saw Rob in a wonderful show called Honeymoon in Vegas... It's like the swingingest show on Broadway that none of y'all saw, you bitches. (laughs) (laughs) You classless whores. You missed out on really one of the coolest, most grooviest shows on Broadway. And then I met this guy through my friend Rob McClure because, you know, Rob McClure is very talented, very fun, very fabulous. And he did this fabulous new show of his own. And there was this guy that I I heard about that was, you know, doing his musical direction who also worked on that groovy score that is Honeymoon in Vegas. He is a very, very sought-after musical arranger and conductor in his own right, y'all. And at the same time, another one of these groovy-ass mother scratches is rolling through the Broadway I love this guy, and the minute that I met him for the very first time, I knew that at some point we would be at least semi-social, fabulous friends on the Twitter and the Facebook, and then we graduated (laughs) to actual personage, (laughs) and then it's like to meet him and to find out that he has worked with a couple of my friends, Billy Porter, who, by the way, I haven't seen in a minute, but the most recent Billy Porter moment, of course, is this fantastic fan fantastic album that was produced by my guest 
Mr. James Sampolina. Hey. How you doing? Uh, you know how you doing. All right. Now, first of all, yeah. I am so glad for us to have you here. So thank you for coming. Because I know he's very honor. right now he is very busy because he is assistant conducting. Actually, you're going to be conducting mm-hmm. soon. Mm-hmm. The show that I already told y'all how much I love on several different occasions in my ethnic tone and as well as my professional tone. Mm. That you should go see the Prince of Broadway yeah. because this man is gonna be <sighs> this man, I, you know what, James? Gosh darn it, where do we start? Where, where, like? where, where, where did like? all of this music, cality, fabulousness, because this is like the swingingest man on Broadway. Let me uh, just put it out there. Thanks, man. How you doing? Uh, you know, I'm doing good. I'm, uh, I'm midway through the second week of our run, and um, we're really excited over there at the Freedmen. Uh, to say it's an honor to do this show is is kind of like the 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 tip of the iceberg because quite honestly uh, everything in my life starts from musical theater in that my parents introduced me to the world of musical theater when I was about one and and that is because they were investors uh, on Broadway during the golden years during the late fifties through the beginning of the 80s, and uh, they were part of a team of people that people used to call the Angels. And the Angels were small-time investors that would put in, you know, $500,000, $2,000. And when you put a group of those together and you kind of combined all that money together, you funded a show. Now, this is, of course, in the days when shows were, you know, anywhere from 50000 to, you know, $150,000, dollars and so you put in a little investment and you saw a play and then it ran six months and that was a long run and the end. And then they'd move on to the next one. And my folks used to tell me a couple years ago that they used to walk down 45th Street and they'd had money in every every theater on 45th Street at that time. This is like in 64, I think, something like that. And anyway, so because they were investors, they had cast albums and I was very musically inclined evidently out of the womb. So they would put me in a crib in front of the record player and literally I wouldn't move. And there's a there's a picture my dad used to have in his office <laughs> in because he was not in the business at all. He had a whole other business. Mm-hmm. But uh, and investing was a sideline business, but he had a picture of me where I was standing in front of this record player and in front of me was the record sleeve to an off-Broadway show that he invested in called How to Steal an Election by Oscar Brand. If any one of you know that show, uh, find me, because I don't know anybody that knows this show at all. I was just about writing it, it down now. How truly, to Steal How to Steal an Election by Oscar Brand. It is literally one of the funniest things ever and so topical right now. Why people haven't picked it up, I'm not really sure. Well, that sounds like we need to call Encores. Right. So, right, exactly. <laughs> or, or at least, the, what's the one with Chris Fennick and Janine, the one that's the off-Broadway one? Oh, it um, like off-Broadway it's, uh, yeah, it's off... Uh, off-center? Um, off-center. Off-center, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So anyway, so they invested in that, and there's this record sleeve of me. I must be like a year and a half, maybe two, just like looking with glee at this record player and how to steal an election sleeve is right next to it. So the roots of all of this are basically in that moment, you know, and I used to just watch the record turnaround. Mm -hmm. My brother who saw Prince of Broadway like about two weeks ago, or no, not even like a week ago, said uh, we were having drinks at Bar Centrale and he said to my sister and I, yeah, I remember when James was in the crib singing at the top of his lungs, Ladies Who Lunch. And I was like, oh, that's embarrassing. <laughs> Especially if you weren't on key. Right. Yeah, right. But it was stretch. Uh, no yeah, work. Right, exactly, no work. 
And my sister didn't remember it. I certainly don't remember it. And my brother was like, wow. oh, yeah, oh, yeah. You were sick of that. You were sick of that, like, at two. Like, you know, Let's in the crib. Give it for the- yeah. Can you imagine, like, what the actual? So, anyway. <laughs> so, obviously, I was listening to a lot of cast albums. I was listening to a lot of jazz because my parents loved Ella and Frank and especially Mel Torme. Uh, Sarah Vaughn, Benny How old Goodman. Are you, do you mind me asking? I'm 47 now. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're in the same generation. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, but then I got into rock and then I was in my rebellious phase and I listened to like, you know, crazy prog rock. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I listened to Kiss. I listened to like uh, new wave stuff. Mm-hmm. I got synthesizers and then I was like in a band where I did demos and stuff. And I just, you know, I forgot everything about musical theater. And then I became a percussion major at college. Because it was easier for me to get into college as a percussion major than as a, a classical piano major. It was really, really difficult oh, for me. You went to Indiana University, right? I did. I did. I went to the School of Music there, now called the Jacob School of Music. Um, and it was the best thing that ever happened because with my percussion training, I got to learn about orchestration from sitting in the back. Right. You know what I mean? Well, so you're like, at the base, basically, exactly, of it. Literally. So you can watch, you can see the, the rise and the change from where you are at the bottom all the way to the very top. Mm-hmm. top and person. I'll tell you what was the big aha moment for me in college was when I was uh, the percussionist for our production of West Side, which was an opera production. Mm-hmm. So we had like a 60-piece orchestra playing West Side Story, if you could imagine it. It was the mm-hmm. most glorious thing I've ever heard in my life. Mm-hmm. But because I had fr- I had always memorized that score and thought, oh yeah, I know where everything goes, and I was Mr. Smartass. Then I was sitting in the back and I was listening to what the French horns were doing, what the brass was doing, and I was like, I've never heard this before in my life. And this wow. opened my eyes to what orchestration was. And it really made me kind of like hone in on the idea that, oh, I, I can do this, I just need to know how to do it and have the experience to do it. right? And so because of all that training at IU and all the experiences that I had, I was in the jazz band, I was a you know piano minor, jazz piano minor, um, I worked on cruise ships during school, so I would take like a semester off, then come back to school, finish my degree. You know, I did mm-hmm. that for like two years. And with all that training, by the time I got to New York, I was like, I don't want to do a master's degree because I want to just get to work. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to lug percussion instruments all around New York. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to go back into piano. And that's when it hit. And all of a sudden, things were coming together about coming to the theater. And it was in my blood, man. It was wow. like literally in my blood. And wow. the more and more I've started to kind of, you know, in, in your middle age, like all of a sudden you start to kind of reflect and, mm-hmm. and you become Sondheimian, you know, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, like things are like, you're having like your living fathers, you know what I mean? Like you're literally living those moments of like, oh, right. I made such, I remember that. I remember that. Uh, God, we were so stupid, you know? So every time, and it's so funny because like in Prince of Broadway, when we get to that moment when, when they say everything was possible and nothing makes sense, I right. literally am like, oh my God. How is it now making sense to me wow. in my middle age? And of course, because age and experience, you know. It just changes everything. Exactly. So with that, looking in the rearview mirror, this was the inevitable conclusion to this first part or my first act mm-hmm. of life, which was getting into Broadway and getting into theater and becoming somebody, some part of the musical community here. Where it's taken me since then has been the most absolutely crazy whirlwind of you know, producing records, going on tour with concerts, um, you know, working with some really high-profile people that I never would have met had it not been for the theater, which is really the backwards way of the way that I thought it was going to go. So wow. that's, the, that's the short story. Wow. 
the short version. James, mm. James Simpleiner, man. Yeah, man. That is, that's awesome. So, like, again, I heard when you talk about being in the percussion, because I thought about myself as, you know, I was a tuba player for mm. a small window of my past. Yeah, okay. And I remember, and still to this day, when I listen to a score, I'm always listening for the tuba. Mm. If there is a tuba, and if <laughs> right. not a tuba, then certainly the bass line, sure. which is why I've always loved Candor and Ebb, because yeah. there's always seemed to be a tuba in their music. Oh, right. um, and I, I, I marvel at the fact that, you know, you have to know more than just the piano and more than just the drums, which, you know, sounds like basically what you brought into that mm. mix. How did you learn about all these other instruments, and how did you? I mean, do you play all these other instruments as well? No, I, you know, I'm one of those rare uh, orchestrators where I do not actually physically play the other instruments. What I did was is that I would end up because I had such a wide social circle at IU, I would end up talking to people about you know how does this work and how do you you know because a trumpet player they have three valves, so mm -hmm. everyone's like, well, I don't understand. There's no keys. How do they do it? And I'm mm -hmm. like, it's all about their lips. That's lips, and, and it's you know embouchure and, and like position, mm -hmm. and so you have to learn about that. That stuff or like with the trombone like understanding how those glisses work that there are certain notes that do it and certain mm -hmm. notes that don't and the so you, what is it the seven yes exactly the trombone exactly so, <laughs> i don't forget i know third and fourth so, is near the bell right exactly <laughs> good for you man thank you so literally like it's all that kind of stuff like talking to the players and saying like what does the word spiccato mean to a string player right or you know what do these mutes do for brass or mm -hmm. what does what is the range of these horns on the reeds and how difficult you know it was to go from a double reed instrument to a single reed instrument or the other way around right. so that when you're orchestrating you have to kind of think about that in this modern world that there are certain people that can do all these things but right. like in the general sense of not everybody can play clarinet and oboe right because those are things that are very very different technically mm -hmm. there's a lot of new york players that can do it so we i've tend seen to a lot of them. oboe flute combos but yeah never clarinet yeah. oboe sometimes it just depends on the piece you know yeah. it's, it's all about the needs and so uh, so I learned all the orchestrational stuff that I ever learned at first from the people that were in my social circle and the people that were at IU. And I would really listen to what they were doing and kind of internalize that. Mm -hmm. But I also was very, like we were talking about before, because I was listening to like Mel Torme and and those beautiful uh, Nelson Riddle arrangements for Ella, right? So like- Or Frank, or come Frank, on now, you know, yeah. Exactly, so like because that was in my head, it was like a language, like Russian or French or you know whatever. So I was starting to digest what the sound of those chords were, what the sounds of those, when you put that combination of instruments together, what does that sound like? So that's a visceral reaction. And then I've also adopted in my own kind of exploration of, of orchestration to use color to describe the way that, you know, I see or hear something uh, before I hit the page with the, pen, with the pencil or with the computer so that I know that, like, I'm going for a certain color in my head and I know how to access those, those colors, literally colors, uh, from the instruments that I'm using. And that's how it all wow. kind of, like, came together. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You better work it out. All right, you know. That's <laughs> fabulous. I mean, again, you know, as I always try to tell people that, that do listen to this podcast, that, again, there are so many avenues into the world of theater mm. if it's something that you love, but not everybody can be an actor. Correct. And I don't need them to be. I need exactly. them to be. In fact, I don't even need them to be in the business. I need people that love to go to the theater. 
You know mm-hmm. what I mean? I need people to really love this idea of sitting in a dark space without their screens and really connect to the people that are entertaining them or giving them a story because without that, then I can't do the thing that I need to do. Right. Like, need to do. So, wow, you know, need, that's very strong. It is. It's something that I need to do is tell stories. And, and actually, that got really infused in me when I worked with Jerry Mitchell. Uh, twice. First time on Never Gonna Blonde. Dance. Well, mm-hmm. on Legally Blonde, yeah. But in, in Never Gonna Dance, which was this very short-lived, beautiful Jerome Kern thing that I worked on with him and Michael Greif, um, you know, I did all these song arrangements for the thing, and Zane Mark did all the dance arrangements, and the dance arrangements were like if Ellington met um, uh, uh, Fred and Ginger. As with Noah Racy, Nancy LeManager, and let me tell you something, the stuff that Jerry Mitchell did in that show... Noah Racy and I still talk about that as some of the most exquisite choreography that I've ever seen. It really, like, but it was the storytelling through this dance that Jerry was doing and how focused he was on making sure that that was prime and front and center. Mm -hmm. And also my time at Williamstown when I was there, both as cabaret director and also doing a bunch of shows on their main stage, I really started to collaborate with people where story was front and center, and it was not so much about the presentational nature of singing loud or singing big or Mm -hmm. whatever, that it was really about how do you tell these stories properly in a way that connects with people. And that shifted my whole focus of like being involved in music as a storyteller. And it helped my jazz improv too. It helped yeah. my it helped my improvisational nature to really know that like every note that I approach, it's not to be flamboyant. It's to really make sure that I'm connecting with myself. And then if the audience can connect to that through listening, then I've done my job. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Again, a thought process that most people don't even think about that mm-hmm. goes into the the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So for you then, sitting back and watching. Yeah. And picking up these these skills from you know, as a percussionist looking basically up the the staff, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Literally, just sitting at the bottom. That just came to me too. Look no, that's up good. The staff, good on you. Um, and seeing how all of these different players, all of these different pieces, kind of come together to create this one story, this mm-hmm. one whole thing. Yeah. Um. How then did you go from, you know that joy love like who was that person that said to you you know what you should come with me and let's sit down and do this because i always believe Mm. that there's always a mentor in this mix was there Mm. a mentor there for you um it depends how we look at that question it's a really interesting question uh my sister who is in the business uh susan samplener is the the company manager at wicked now Mm -hmm. uh she's been in the business quite a while and before she was the company manager there she was the company manager all over the city both for, I mean, all over the place, for for individual productions, for the Lincoln Center Group. Uh, she started at The Public back in the 80s when Joe Papp was still alive. So, you know, she's had a wealth of experience uh, dealing with this community. And when she started to see how I was growing as a musician and the jobs that I was taking in the beginning, she started to see, like, I was getting better at it. And so she started to introduce me to people along the way. And one of those people that ended up being was her now wife, but then girlfriend, Emily Grishman, who is a music prep yeah. specialist and, and probably the best in the business, although I'm very, very you're, biased. And you better be. She <laughs> might be listening. She, she might be listening. You're my favorite! Yeah. So, and I learned everything about music prep from her. Mm-hmm. And through her office, people would start to come through the door, like Harold Wheeler and Ralph Burns and Michael Gibson. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, it, the list goes on and on right. and on. Bruce Coughlin, like everybody was orchestrating, John Tunick, like all these people, Jonathan would come in and, and you would just look at the pages and everybody had a different handwriting. 
And everybody had a different flair to their pages. And I started to connect with that, you know? And so those were mentors, even though they didn't sit me down and go, here's how you do it. Mm -hmm. By looking at their score pages, I could see how they were doing it. I could see how it, like for certain people, it was a giant gesture. But for other people, it was a simple gesture. And how does that reflect in the orchestrations? And because I read scores, I could sit there in Emily's office and read the brand new orchestrations for Light in the Piazza. Do you know what I mean? Or I could read through Thoroughly Modern Millie. Or I could read through Sideshow and just see how Harold dealt with it or how Ralph Burns dealt with it or whatever. Janine, yeah. Right, exactly. And like from a compositional standpoint, but from an orchestrational standpoint, and really get inside like how they hear color for these moments. And then I'd go to see it, and I was like, see if I got it right. Like if I guessed correctly by seeing what was on the page. Mm Eight times out of ten, I was good. Wow. <laughs> but wow. the ones that I missed, I was like, oh, wow, I missed that detail. And mm-hmm. so those were kind of my mentors. And then it, it took meeting up with Billy Porter on Radiant Baby in 2003 for everything to start to you know, really codify in terms of like finding my sound, finding my lane, mm-hmm. finding my arrangement groove, like all that stuff. Because um, you and, and Tony Award winning Billy Porter. <laughs> and Grammy. You got to say Tony and Grammy. Grammy. That's right. Because if right. he's listening, he's, Ooh, already, screaming. he's, he's already, already screaming at, at those and, and of course screaming at me. I know that bitch did not forget my Grammy. Uh-huh. No, I did not. No, you did not. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Billy. Sorry, Billy. I, you know it was in the moment, baby. Don't be mad. Anyway, yeah, no, It's all good. <laughs> you it's know, all good. All you right. know I'm mad respect. <laughs> um, so, But how did that happen? How did you and Billy hook up? In so, terms of, of working. Yeah. I mean, uh, I got a call from um, Zane Mark, mm-hmm. uh, Adrian Lennox's husband, who said we had just finished kind of a workshop, I think, of, of uh, Never Gonna Dance, and we had hit it off. And he was like, listen, there's this woman named Deborah Barsha who's written this piece about the life of Keith Haring, and they're looking for a keyboard player, and she just is not happy with a lot of the people that have been coming through the door. How funny. I think I've met her. Yeah, she's great. She used I to know be on Jersey Boys. She's fantastic. A... Wow. Oh my god. And her writing is spectacular and like literally one of the best scores like of of especially of my early career but in the last like 5 10 years mm-hmm. that I've ever done that I'm literally like wow. I mean, I keep coming back to some of those songs and she's just she played for Parliament back in the day like with George Clinton like she is fierce. Wow. So anyway, there were a lot of keyboard players coming through the door and Deborah wasn't really happy with anybody and so I got this call from Zane and he was like I think they're looking for you. I'm like, "All right." Mm-hmm. So I walked in the door and Kim Grigsby was the MD and so it was her and Deborah Barsha and I sat and played some stuff from the score and Deborah like Screech. She was like, where have you been? Where have you been? So I got this gig, right? Is, this the, what, is that what they do? They just give you, they put the score in front of you, yeah. and then you, that's like, like, that's your audition. Basically. Okay. Yeah. But I had like a day or two to practice or whatever right. look through. And I was like, oh yeah, I get this feel. This mm-hmm. makes perfect sense. So anyway, I would do that, blah, blah, blah. Get to the thing, and I didn't know who was in the cast. And at the time, it was like a whole bunch of like young up-and-comers, mm-hmm. where now you know who they are. Uh, 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 Lena Hall. Right, Selena Carvajal. Selena Carvajal was in that. Um, uh, Tracy Beezer, who's going to be in the new Frozen, she was in it, and she's been like a longtime show partner with me. Like we've done so many shows together. Um, uh, who else was in that? Aaron Lore was in that. Danny Reichard was our our uh, Keith Haring. Oh you know, uh, what's her name? Was uh, 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 oh god, the lead. She was so good, and she does a lot of TV now. I'm, I'm so sorry, mm-hmm. I'm blanking. But then uh, 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 Billy Porter. In the show. And I was like, I mean, because Billy Porter won Star Search in my head. Mm-hmm. And I kind of knew Grease because like my sister worked on it for a minute. Uh-huh. And I kind of knew that he had done it, but I didn't pay attention to that. I was focused on the R&B Billy Porter who won Star Search. That's and right. I was like, 
oh my god, like uh, what how am I gonna do? Him. Right, exactly. <laughs> so we spent like the first two weeks like circling because I didn't know how to talk to him because mm-hmm. I was like, he's a legend, right? And he didn't really know who I was, so he wasn't talking to me. Then one day I was like noodling around on the piano. He comes over, and I swear to you, this is true. He'll tell you the story too. He goes, "What's your name again?" <laughs> And I was like, I literally like whispered. That's him. I whispered. I was like, James Samplina. He's like, what? I'm like, James James Samplina. Is that your name? Okay, we're gonna be doing stuff. We're gonna be doing stuff. <laughs> and then he just walked away. And walked away. <laughs> this mf'er just walked away. And I was like, okay. And I'm like really shy at this point. <laughs> yeah. And have no social skills whatsoever. And Billy Porter just said that to me, mm-hmm. and I was like, uh, I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. About four weeks later, in the middle of the run, he's like, Sam Plater, get in here! And like, into the dressing room. And he's like, we're doing Joe's Pub. Like, there's no asking. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And also, P.S., this has been our relationship since that day, where there's no asking. It's just like, we're doing this. We're doing this. Because then I don't have a chance to say, um, I'm busy, or no, he, he uh, I don't want to. Because he doesn't or, care. No, he doesn't care. Thank you. So, um, so he's like, we're doing Joe's Pub. And we did this gig, and it was the first time that the, that the community mm-hmm. had ever seen me play in New York with somebody of this stature in my career. So, like, you know, Janine was there, Tesori, Michael John was there, uh, Adam Gettle was there, uh, Ted uh, Sperling was there. There's a lot of, like, <sighs> Illuminati. Like, it was crazy. And all of these How? people were in the room, and I had never played piano in front of them. They knew me as a copyist. Mm-hmm. Or they knew me as, like, Susan's brother, or, like, whatever. Yeah. Like, but, but they, they didn't, didn't know, know you me. as right. James, the man on the keyboard. And there I am playing for Billy Porter, and it was like the whole world was, like, crashing on my head. And so once I got through that gig and I felt a little better about myself, mm-hmm. then I could start to kind of piece together this relationship. But that's how it all began, was at Radiant Baby. Wow. And it's been 14 years. Wow. Yeah. You guys have done a lot of stuff together because you did yeah. his um, um, Broadway and Soul. At the corner of Broadway and Soul. And um, the, what was this, the Sondheim, did you work oh, on him with the Sondheim? Alive. Being yeah. Alive, yeah. Yeah, we co-wrote that with Michael McElroy. And um, uh, Michael did all the, the big, big gospel moments. Mm-hmm. And Billy and I crafted, I think we ended up with 45 Sondheim things in that show. It, the show only ran eighty minutes, so there were like a couple bars here, a couple mm-hmm. bars there. But the idea was that it was a it was the first African American Sondheim review, where mm-hmm. we took the music of Stephen Sondheim and ran it through the African American prism. So it wow. did jazz, it did hip hop, soul, R and B, gospel, funk, and um, uh, people still come up to me that saw it to this day and ask me if we're ever going to get back to it. And the answer is someday we really do hope to. Oh, well, I remember because, you know, right now, if you guys are on the Amazon, <laughs> there's a fantastic album. It's The Soul of Roger Hart? No, Soul, Soul of Richard Rogers. Soul of Richard Rogers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to say, when I went to the CD signing, because, you know, that's what you do when you're in the biz. Right. You got to go to the signings. because Make it known. You know, make it known that you're there. Uh-huh. Um, and I saw you there, and I saw a lot of other really great people. And it was like I hadn't heard anything of the music. I had actually, I, I got thing from the publicist. I got like three songs mm. in advance, and mm. then I got the rest of the album after the mm-hmm. fact. And I sat there, and I went through that album at least three times mm-hmm. because it is the most fabulous interpretation of something that I never thought would ever be interpreted that mm. way. Thanks, and man. then as soon as I heard that, I yeah. remembered, I think I asked you that night, I was like, yeah. you guys want to be doing that Sondheim thing? Yeah, yeah, because yeah. I had interviewed Rima Webb, who was a mm. part of that right, a long of time course. ago, and I know Patina Miller was, right. all these names now yeah. to me. Yeah. And it was just interesting to hear 
that music being given that eye, given that yeah. prism, and still not losing the power. Yeah. Because that was the other thing. It's like the, the it's all about the lyrics and saving the power. But man. one of the I will tell you this that one of the things as an arranger that I've been very very conscious of and keep as my kind of like go to mo is that if I'm not serving the story or the lyric of whatever it is that I'm arranging, I've failed the song. Like I've wow. really failed the song. Have you what so, what what prayers that happened in your career so far? I think there was a. I think the, the, I don't know if there's a biggest failure, but I know that like there's been several like failed attempts at things that I felt like, you know what, this isn't good enough for me to put out in public and I need to scrap it and go back and kind of do it. And that, that happened with Sunday before Billy and I put it on Broadway and Soul because mm -hmm. we didn't do it in our original, that original concert I told you about, we didn't do it as our closer. That came later. Um, we had done Last Midnight and everybody kind of flipped out. And all I had really done was added a groove. I really didn't like attack it. Mm -hmm. But Sunday I really attacked is like a gospel thing. And that's probably the thing that people like come up to me and tell me about the most that really has affected the way that they see arrangements or the way that they see music in the theater and kind of shifting the paradigm from something that you think you expect to hear to something that has a whole other meaning to it because of the way that we've treated it right. and the way that Michael and Billy and I kind of attacked that material, you know? Um, so it's really about like, uh, my favorite one that I did in being alive was if I have a favorite because they're, they're all kind great. of they're all ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But the one that we did that literally makes me just like so teary every time is near the end of the play. Uh, Rima is playing some kind of like motherly character, and she's uh, summing up a lot of what's happened in the last twenty minutes with a version of "Move On," that is fully R and B'd and gospel and and then the other characters in their lives kind of like interspersed different kind of Sondheimian stuff that we've mm -hmm. already uh, presented. Right. And the way it comes together, and I use different elements of things that have come in and out of my life to get the points across, to make space for the lyrics. Like there's a section of it where it goes into this very heavy, almost Benny and the Jets section. Mm. But the reason why I picked that is because of the space that it created to get those words across, right? Right. So it's not just using R&B and R&B. It's about using the musical materials that have come in and out of my life for the last 40 some odd years and how I can kind of interpolate those into my own way to express the things that need to be expressed. So when I hit on that in that session with Billy when we were writing it, he literally was like, where did that come from? Because for him, he hadn't necessarily been exposed to Benny and the Jets and that feel and what that right. is. But for me, like he introduced me to a whole world of like contemporary Christian gospel that Which as a amazing. suburban Westchester Jew, <laughs> I might not have been exposed to in my youth. <laughs> But now, you know what I mean? But now I live and breathe that stuff because he's exposed me to so much of it and it's so much a part of my harmonic and musical language now that right. I can access that when I need to, but I don't do it all right. the time. It's just yeah. another color mm -hmm. in the in the So to box. speak. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, wait, now, hold, okay, hold on. Hold that thought, Mr. Man, because we are just going way too long. So we're gonna have to break it up in two pieces. So guess what? You're gonna hit the rest of James Samplina yeah. Look at that. I've stretched you out for two days, Daddy. Look at you. Love it. All right.